Good morning, it's Sunday, the 7th day of August 2016. In 1967, two men on horseback made one of the most famous amateur films in history and it was only 53 seconds long. Today we tell the story of the famous Patterson-Gimlin Bigfoot film on the 100th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. I'm so glad you're with me today. Well, today is the big day. It's the 100th episode, and we're going to announce the winner of the Coffee with Jeff mug. And we're going to do that at the conclusion of today's episode. No, forget that. Let's do it now. Let's pick the winner right now. Let me reach into the hat with all the uh, names. And thank you to everybody who entered today's contest. And I got a name here, let's pick it out. And the winner. Angela Smith. Angela Smith, you've won a Coffee with Jeff mug. Now I've got your email and I believe you have mine. We'll arrange for uh, having a mug shipped to your home or wherever you want it shipped to. Thank you so much and thanks to everybody who listens to the show. It's it's really wonderful. Now, before we get started with today's show, I want to thank a listener. Her name is Tina, and she sent me a a wonderful email. And she suggested I do a story of the Women's Air Force Service pilots. And she had a special interest in the subject because her mother was one of those pilots. Now, I let her know that we did an episode on the Wasps way back in August of last year. A suggestion by Sycon's own Rebecca from Half Pints and Whole Notes, by the way. Anyway... Tina emailed me back after listening to the show, and she said some wonderful things about it. Thank you so much, Tina. And she also sent me some photos of her mom and one of her dad, and I'll be posting those soon on the Coffee with Jeff blog. It should be up by Monday or Tuesday if anybody wants to check it out. That's coffeewithjeff.com. Now, as for today's show, it's the first part of two that I'm going to focus on the famous Patterson-Giblin Bigfoot film. Now, actually, this could be part two of three, because on my 10th episode of Coffee with Jeff, I did a story called The Birth of Bigfoot, and that was about the first findings of footprints of the legendary beast in Northern California in 1958, and how that might or might not have been a hoax. Well, those findings led directly to Roger Patterson and his search for Bigfoot, and I even said on that show that the Patterson-Gimlin footage was a story for another day. Well, today is that other day. I'm sure you've seen the film. It's in every documentary about the beast. and It's the shaky film of Bigfoot walking through the woods by a creek that was taken in 1967. And although I've seen the film many times, I really didn't know how it came to be. Most times you see it, the narrator will just say, two men were riding on a horseback, they came across a Bigfoot and took these movies. And then they tell you that, Bigfoot is real, or they tell you Bigfoot is not real, depending on the bias of the show. Anyway, today we will tell the legend or the story of how Roger Patterson or Bob Gimlin came across the beast. And next week, part two will be the 
controversy over the film. And trust me, there's some pretty fun stuff there. Now, I've made it clear in the past that I'm not a big believer in Bigfoot, and I've I've made fun of those that do believe in Bigfoot, but today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to tell the story without any judgment from me. I'm just going to tell the story as best as I can, the way I understand it, and uh, we'll go from there. Oh, you know what that means? That means Bigfoot news. Headline today, Coffee with Jeff presents the story of Roger Patterson, Bob Gimlin, and the famous film they took. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. Man or beast? What it is is still unknown. Some believe that Bigfoot is a kind of ape undiscovered by science or a prehistoric species of ape thought to be extinct. Others speculate it might be the so-called missing link or even early man. Whatever it is, the volume of evidence seems conclusive. Our Earth is host to such giant creatures as the Bigfoot. There are the sightings corroborated by hypnosis and polygraph tests, the footprints, the sound recordings, the photographs, the film, all enough to prove that Bigfoot is as much a part of our life as the gorilla or the Loch Ness Monster. There was an article in True Magazine in December of 1959 called The Strange Story of America's Abominable Snowman by Ivan T. Sanderson. And of course, it was about the legendary creature known as Bigfoot. We told the story in episode 10 of Coffee with Jeff. It was the tale of Jerry Crew, Ray Wallace, and the first modern findings of Bigfoot. Actually, these loggers didn't actually see the hairy man-beast, but found its footprints. And as the story goes, according to Ray Wallace's son, they were created by Ray as a prank. Anyway, long before a possible prank was being talked about, Roger Patterson read the stories of these footprints being found all over Bluff Creek in Northern California, and he began to take a special interest in the mystery. Some might say he was actually obsessed with the story. Roger Patterson was born on February 14, 1933 in Walls, South Dakota. And at the time of the Bigfoot encounters in California, he and his family were living in Yakima, Washington. He was a rodeo rider and a rancher. He was also an inventor and was constantly trying to sell his inventions, but was never very successful. Roger visited the Bluff Creek area, the place where Jerry Crew had found the footprints, and talked to all those that believed in the creature, and, and even saw some fresh footprints for himself, which was for Roger a thrilling experience. He began to think that finding the beast would make him rich and famous. Most of his time and money went into his research, and he also had to deal with ridicule from a lot of people. He led several expeditions and self-published a book in 1966 called Do Abominable Snowmen of America Really Exist? Now, Roger wasn't a very big man in appearance, but when he mounted one of his expeditions into the woods, there was no doubt that Roger was in charge. Bob Gimlin was a large man born on October 18, 1931 in Missouri, and like Roger, he ended up in Yakima, Washington. He was a man who liked to take long horse rides through the woods by himself. 
In fact, his wife was used to him disappearing for days on end when he went on one of his long journeys. Bob and Roger had been friends a long time since they used to rodeo together. Bob lived about 25 miles from Roger Patterson's place and would often stop by for a chat when he was on a horse ride. Now and again, Roger would get his horse ready and ride along with Bob. At the time, Giblin had never heard of Bigfoot or Sasquatch until Roger began telling him his stories. The two would go out camping at night and Roger would tell Bob of his latest finds, of the footprints that were found in Northern California. He would produce plaster casts of the footprints and he would play cassette recordings of those he had interviewed that had encounters with Bigfoot. When Roger asked Bob what he thought, he would tell Roger, I'm kind of like old Harry Truman. I have to see things to believe it. And this would cause Roger to laugh. Gimlin would tell Roger that he didn't have time for something like Bigfoot. He was too busy working. In the spring of 1967, Roger asked Bob if he would help with his latest idea. He wanted to make a short documentary film or pseudo-documentary film about Bigfoot. The idea was to raise money with the film so he could use the money to mount a large expedition in Northern California in the Bluff Creek area. He had a man who was going to do some camera work and wanted Bob Gimlin to come along as a tracker. Bob agreed to help on the weekends when he had time. So Roger, Bob, and a few others, including Bob Hieronymus, who will be featured in part two of this story next week, started going out and filming expeditions. Bob Gimlin, for the film, would dress as an Indian tracker, wearing a wig and traditional Hollywood-style Native American clothes. Roger wanted to take the film crew to Northern California, but Bob said he couldn't do it. After all, he had a job. But Bob also realized there was probably something about this Bigfoot thing, with all the sightings and whatnot, but he still wasn't sure. I mean, he had seen no evidence of Bigfoot himself, not even a footprint. One day in the fall of 1967, Roger showed up at Bob Gimlin's home, wide-eyed and excited. One day in the fall of 1967, Roger showed up at Bob Gimlin's home. He was wide-eyed and excited. He told Bob that a couple of his friends, Sly McCoy and Al Hodgins from Willows Creek, California, had called and left a message with Patterson's wife that three different-sized Bigfoot footprints had been found on the fresh logging roads in the Bluff Creek area. This was the same area where Jerry Crew had first reported the footprints nine years earlier. Patterson wanted the two of them to go to Northern California with the film camera and take a look. Bob was working as a hot roofer, but... Since the summer was coming to an end, his boss gave him permission to take some time off, so he agreed to join Roger. While Bob's wife thought the whole Bigfoot thing was a little crazy, she was used to him going on long horsebacking rides, so she really didn't have a problem. Roger's brother-in-law, who believed in Roger's quest, agreed to reimburse Bob for all his expenses. It took some time for Bob to get everything arranged so he could leave for a while, and by the time everything was set, it was late September or early October. So the two men in Bob's truck, which was a one-ton Chevrolet, with a film camera, two 100-foot rolls of color film, and three horses began on a long journey. A journey that would change their lives forever. What Bob was hoping for on this journey was just to see some evidence for himself, like footprints. 
like the ones Roger used to make plaster casts. But when they arrived in Bluff Creek, they found that it had been raining very hard for days, washing away everything they were hoping to see, and Bob was very disappointed. So the two men began just to ride around, mile after mile, day after day, looking for signs or evidence of Bigfoot, and they didn't find anything. Bob would go out at night and check the logging roads around the equipment, hoping to find footprints in the new dirt. While he did find all types of footprints, not one of them were from a large, hairy creature. He was beginning to get very depressed by the whole expedition. Not only was it a lack of sightings that got him depressed, but also the amount of money he was spending for gas on his large truck. Although he was supposed to be reimbursed, he began to worry that that might never happen. On October 19, 1967, the two men camped near Bluff Creek, a little farther back in the woods than they had previously been. On the morning of the 20th, Bob got up early and rode out to take a look on his own for a while. When he returned at 10 a.m., Patterson was gone. After a short time, Patterson returned and asked Gimlin where he had been looking. Patterson suggested that it might be a good idea to go back to an area that they had already explored, and Bob agreed. At around noon, the two men left camp on their horses, Roger in front and Bob and the pack horse behind. They were riding along the east bank of Bluff Creek about three and a half miles from their camp. They came across a fallen tree with the roots sticking up about 8 to 10 feet high. The tree had caused a dam in the creek, rerouting the water a bit, and as they rounded the bend, with Roger about 20 feet in front of Bob, both horses began to act up. Bob let go of the pack horse to get control of his, and Roger either got down from his horse or was thrown down from his horse. And when he looked up across the creek, there was a 6-foot-tall, 400-pound beast, Roger quickly scrambled to get the film camera from a saddlebag. Now, previously the two men had made an agreement that they would never hurt the creature if they came across it, unless the two men were in danger. So as Bob started to go towards the beast with his camera in hand, he yelled for Bob to cover him. Bob knew what this meant. It was to grab the rifle and be ready in case Roger was attacked. That was the only thing the two men would say until the encounter was over. What they were witnessing was a large, hairy, bipedal, ape-like figure with short, either silvery brown or reddish brown or black hair covering most of its body, including prominent breasts. Giblin said later that his first thoughts were, wow, they really do exist. He rode his horse across the creek and realized that if the creature was to attack, he wouldn't be able to get a good shot off from up on his horse, so he quickly got down and got ready. By this time, the Bigfoot creature was about 200 feet away from him, Bob figured. He knew that if the creature came after him, he would be able to get a good shot. Roger was a little away filming the now-famous footage. He had fallen down and was laying on his elbow, taking the footage. Now, if you've ever seen the film, and it's available everywhere, all over YouTube, now I'll have a link to some of it on the Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode, you'll see that Bigfoot crosses in front of Roger gives him or the camera a quick look, and then slowly but steadily walks into the woods. Patterson would later characterize the creature's expression as one of, as he said, contempt and disgust. You know how it is when an umpire tells you one more word and you're out of the game? That's the way it felt. The 23.85 feet of film that Roger shot 
which was 954 frames, had become probably the most famous amateur film ever. It has been dissected and examined frame by frame more than any other footage, probably more than the Sapruder film of the JFK assassination. The whole encounter with the beast lasted less than two minutes. Bob began to follow the creature, but Roger, who was now without his horse, said no. He wanted Bob to stay with him, feeling a little exposed without a gun. And for some reason, Roger had the impression that there might be two more Bigfoots in the area, possibly because three different sizes of footprints had recently been seen. The two men went back and got Roger's horse, reloaded the camera, then started to track the animal. Most of the way, they didn't find any tracks but scuffles in the gravel where the beast had walked along the creek. About a quarter of the mile down, they saw part of a wet footprint on a rock, and they could tell that it had headed up in the cliffs through the rocks. At some point, they did go back and get the equipment they needed for taking plaster casts because they did take a couple plaster casts of footprints they came across. They looked at one of the footprints and how deep it was in the dirt, and they began to experiment, having Bob jump off a rock and see how deep his footprints went into the earth, and then they compared it to how deep their horse's hooves went into the ground when it had a man on the back, and they used that to determine the creature's weight. Bob really wanted to keep going, to keep tracking the beast, but Roger said no. It was getting late in the day, and it would be dark soon. In fact, by the time they got back to the truck, it had already gotten pitch black. They got to a phone and Roger called to see if he'd get some tracking dogs, but this proved unsuccessful. Then he was determined to get the film on its way to get developed. Because he had fallen down and was filming from the ground, he had no idea if he actually had captured the beast or not. He went to a local town and arranged to have the film airmailed to his brother-in-law, L. Diatley. Once the film was on its way, they headed back to the camp, but first they stopped at the Lower Trinity Ranger Station and talked to two of Patterson's friends, Sly McCoy and Al Hodgson. Al gave Gimlin a few cardboard boxes so he'd cover up the footprints in the morning until others could come and examine them. Roger used their phone to call the Daily Time Standard newspaper and told them the story. After that, they returned to camp. By this time, it was midnight, and the two sat under a bright full moon and began to talk about what they had seen. The two men described the smell of the creature differently. Gimlin said he thought it had a musty, skunky smell, while Patterson said it smelled like an old, wet dog that had been rolling in cow manure. And the next morning, it began to rain. Bob woke up early, and... He heard the beginnings of raindrops and told Roger he wanted to get up there and cover the tracks before the rain ruined them. The cardboard boxes were useless, becoming a soggy mess, so he went to the tracks and began pulling dead bark off fallen trees to cover them. He said later that this was a good thing because it allowed people later to go down and begin an investigation. At this point, the two men decided it was time to head back home. It was a nightmare getting out of the area because of the rain. Bob's truck wasn't a four-wheel drive and had a tough time getting going. He said it took almost all day just to travel the 25 miles to get onto the highway. He drove all day and all night to get back to Yakima. He was so tired after all this that when the film was first shown a day or two later, he was too worn out to attend. All the others involved gave him a hard time for not being there. The site was first visited by a U.S. Forest Service person, Lyle Laverty, with three others on Monday the 23rd, 
and they took six photos of the tracks. A taxidermist and outdoorsman, Roger Titmus, went to the site with his brother-in-law and sister and made plaster casts of ten successive footprints. Grover Krantz, who was an American anthropologist and one of the few scientists not only to research Bigfoot, but also to express his belief in its existence, said, Patterson had the film developed as soon as possible. At first he thought he had brought in proof of Bigfoot's existence and really expected the scientists to accept it, but only a few scientists were willing to even look at the film. When Bob Gimlin finally saw the footage for himself, he said he wasn't impressed at all. He didn't think there was very much there. While the scientific community pretty much ignored the film, Patterson found all sorts of ways to capitalize on it. He made a deal with the BBC for a documentary, which included, along with his Bigfoot footage, other footage he had shot, and new footage that he and his brother-in-law, Al Dietli, made. He began appearing on TV shows, including The Joey Bishop Show and The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. It was said that he sold the distribution rights to several parties resulting in costly legal problems. Now with Roger Patterson and his brother-in-law doing everything they could to make money off the film, Bob Gimlin seemed to do everything possible to distance himself from the incident. He did make one appearance in Canada to promote the film, but after that he stopped talking to anybody about it, refusing to do interviews and such. There was a few reasons for this. For one, his wife was extremely embarrassed by the harassment they were receiving. But more importantly, he claimed that he had a deal with Patterson and Al D'Antley to split the profits from the film three ways. But Roger and Al broke the deal and he never saw any money. It wasn't until 2003 when Gimlin began to occasionally talk about the film. Nowadays, you can find quite a few YouTube clips with him talking to Bigfoot believers about his experiences. People who believe in Bigfoot have pointed out that Patterson never stopped his pursuit of the beast and spent all his money he earned from the film on his quest. Patterson died of cancer in 1972 and maintained right to the end that the creature on the film was real. Bob Gimlin is still alive and now and again finds time to talk about his experiences. He too maintains that everything you see on the film was real. I've used a few of his talks in writing today's episode, including his appearance on the Sasquatch Chronicles in 2015. I'll have a link to that on Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. Perhaps the most startling and far-reaching event in the recent history of Bigfoot hunting happened to a longtime investigator by the name of Roger Patterson. In October of 1967, he and a friend were in the Bluff Creek area of Northern California to investigate a reported sighting of two creatures. Suddenly his horse shied as a large creature stood erect from behind a log where it had been drinking from the creek. Patterson grabbed a 16-millimeter camera from the saddlebag and jumped from the back of the rearing horse to take the following pictures. Let's hear in Patterson's words exactly what happened that day. As it, uh, as it walked across the sandbar, I was able to get uh, uh, some fairly good footage of it. It turned uh, a couple of times and looked at us. And as it, uh, as it turned, uh, uh, it seemed to give me the impression that it didn't want uh, anything to do with it. It didn't run. It didn't uh, act scared, but yet it acted leery of us. Patterson thought that he had proved once and for all that the creatures existed. But he found that even the film was in question. 
Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old goal and listen to the sad sack. I had a thought while researching this story. And I admit, this is just letting my mind wander a bit. And there's probably nothing to this. In fact, I have no evidence of this. But it just came to me that uh, the morning that they shot the footage of the beast, Bob Gimlin left and then came back and Roger Patterson was gone. Roger Patterson comes back and he wants to investigate an area that they've already been to. And Giblin agrees. And what if, and again, this is a very big if, what if, while Patterson was gone, he made arrangements to have a man in a suit at a predetermined area, an area that he was already familiar with? So when him and Bob left that day, Patterson knew exactly where to go. And so Gimlin was totally fooled by Patterson and thinking the beast was real. Of course, maybe I've just added one more to the thousands of hoax theories that are out there. And I'll admit, it's far-fetched, probably not true. But next week on the show, we are going to talk about all the theories of why people believe in the footage or don't believe in the footage. And all the people that have come out of the woodwork to claim that they were part of the hoax. And I got to admit, there's some pretty weird stuff out there, and every one of them has their, well, it could be, but it probably isn't. I want to think that it was a hoax, but their story really doesn't make any sense. It's The whole thing is pretty remarkable. Now, my views on the footage is simple. I hope we never find out if it's real or not. I like this idea. I like the idea that there's this grand mystery. In. And I have to admit that when I first started researching this, I figured right away I would find some bit of information, some confession, something that would make me instantly believe that this was a fake. But that just never happened. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that leads towards fakery, but every one of them has its, well... That guys may be lying. So I, I hope you'll be back to hear part two t- next week. Um, and, and, and I would like to really thank everybody who listens to this show. I mean, it's been 100 episodes, which I'm, 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 I know it's just an arbitrary number, but I'm, I'm still amazed that I've been able to do 100 episodes and I hope to do a lot more. Um, and I hope you will be with me for those episodes and, you know, and a lot of you, like Tina, have sent me emails over these last couple of years, and all of them have been really nice and supportive. And I, I want to thank you for that. And doing a podcast, for the most part, is a one-way thing. I mean, I do the podcast, put it out there, and I have no idea whether people are enjoying it. People roll their eyes and say, and say to themselves, why is this guy doing this? It's so stupid. I have no idea. So when I get an email like Tina's and, and the other people who have sent me emails, uh, and I don't want to sound too sappy, but it really makes me want to continue and go on with what I'm doing. And uh, again, thank you to everybody who's sent me wonderful emails. And, um, and anybody can send me an email at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. I would greatly appreciate it, even if it's just to say hi. Anyway, that's enough of my rambling, uh... Let's get on with the ending credits. We at PsyCon could use your help in keeping our podcast going. You know, you should think about becoming a sponsor or Patreon page. Just go to PsyCon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N, for more information. 
And of course, thank you to every one of you who already subscribe. And speaking of Psycon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? You'll find an amazing amount of geek culture. You'll find shows like Half Pints and Whole Notes, and The History Files, Gordon's Gun Closet, Geek Days, and so many more. Check out all of them at Psycon.fm. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. If you want to complain or just say hi or tell me how great I am or send me a good story idea like Tina did, you can do that at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you're invited to enjoy. If you want to support the show, but you can't help financially, and I can understand that, then why don't you go over to iTunes and leave a review? Those reviews really help. And remember, links to all the sources that I use to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network. My wife of 32 years for being my wife of 32 years. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And, of course, a special shout-out to all those that repost this on Facebook and Twitter. You will always have a special place in my heart. Thanks to everybody, and we'll be back next week for Part 2, Show 101. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream. Didn't like it, now he never looks back. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee, 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 coffee.